0: Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsya, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. Today is Wednesday, June 7, 2023. This episode is produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English in the United States for the global Ukrainian community since 1933 defense forces in Ukraine. Our guest for this episode is the Ukrainian-Canadian Daniel Bilak, who is a former chairman of Ukraine Invest, a partner at the law firm Kinsteller, and now actively involved in the territorial defense forces in Ukraine. Welcome, Daniel. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. So to start off with, can you give us some background on your education and your profession?
1: Sure. Uh, as, I, as I tell people, I was born in a small Western Ukrainian village called Toronto. And um, I, I grew up in the Toronto area. I uh, went to school, went to law school in, uh, in Montreal at McGill um, and, uh, and started practicing law in Toronto after that. It was uh, still the age of the Soviet Union. Gives you an idea how old I am and um and so i uh, uh you know i was practicing law in toronto and then the uh ukraine declared its independence in 1991 and I, one of our clients was the canadian banknote company um that was uh engaged by the canadian government and the ukrainian parliament uh this was still the ukrainian ssr uh because it was still before the independence uh, to print the new currency for Ukraine, the hryvnia, a new old currency, because this was historically the uh, the currency of Kievan Rus uh, during the time of Prince Grand Prince Volodymyr. And so uh, this uh, the Ukrainian parliament wanted to uh, print the currency as an attribute of sovereignty. And that's how it got started in Ukraine. It was a, quite an exciting project.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your Ukrainian roots in Canada? Did your parents come from Ukraine?
1: My mom was born in Canada of Ukrainian immigrants who came uh, between the wars. And uh, my father came to Canada uh, after the Second World War. So we, I grew up in a you know, typical diaspora Ukrainian-Canadian family in the, in, in the Toronto area. Went to Plast, uh, went to Ukrainian school. Um, so we, we had, had all of that, something I think your many of your
0: listeners could relate to when did you move to ukraine and i think you alluded to why you did but if you can just recap on that
1: yeah the i mean you know i never expected in 1991 to be living in ukraine i mean i've i've been essentially living and and working in ukraine for about uh, 30 years uh for the first from about 1993 to uh, 1991 to 1994 i was traveling back and forth uh between uh, canada and ukraine uh, I started to do other work for clients in uh, uh in Ukraine uh beyond uh, the the banknote deal and um and then in uh, we I, I was involved in in starting a uh, legal foundation uh with uh, some people from the uh Ukrainian parliament a fellow named Sidhi Holovate who's now the uh, uh chairman of this of the Constitutional Court of Ukraine Um, And a Ukrainian-Canadian named Helena Freeland, who is the mother of Christopher Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance of Canada today. So it's a a small world. And uh, we created this uh, organization called the Ukrainian Legal Foundation that was basically almost a parallel organization to the Ministry of Justice. We were the ones that were driving the uh, uh, development of a new constitution, a new civil code, a new criminal code. And... um, in 1996, 1995-96, Ukraine, through Serhii Holovate's efforts as a young people's deputy, became a member of the Council of Europe. And it actually became a member before Russia did, which was a key objective. And as part of the terms of accession to the Council of Europe, uh, there was a whole list of things that Ukraine undertook to uh, to do as homework a new constitution, a new civil code, a new criminal code, a new law on the uh, on the procuratura, a new law on the uh, on the legal profession. So, you know, basically a complete overhaul of, of the legal system. And so he was asked by the president, uh, Kuchma, to become minister of justice, to put all of that into place. And he called me up and he said, look, I need your help. I don't know how to do this. And I said, "Well, you think? I know how to do this. And uh, so completely unencumbered by any knowledge and experience of how how to uh overhaul a legal system in an emerging democracy we went ahead and tried and uh we uh it was it was great fun uh we were basically had to restructure the uh, the ministry of justice completely uh to basically along the lines of of how to implement all of these terms of accession and uh that was my uh, introduction into into administrative reform and so from that we went on to restructuring other ministries uh, over a period of time by this time i'd moved to ireland and then then to ukraine and i basically i've been living living in ukraine probably since uh, since 19 pretty, pretty much on uh, overall since
0: 1996. Daniel when and why did you first become involved in ukrainian territorial defense forces? Well, I think I think
1: my previous answer might give you an inkling. I mean, I, I I'm all in here. My wife and my younger children are Ukrainian. They're, they they live here, and uh, I uh, everything I pretty much have is is in Ukraine. I have uh, been involved in helping build this nation in some small some small way for for the past thirty years, and you know I'm I'm damned if somebody's going to come and take it away and and destroy everything that we work for. You know I. I you know, in all, in all honesty, Michael, I think sometimes in, in, in North America and in Europe, uh, people, people take their freedom for granted and that uh, somehow freedom is an entitlement. It's something that's owed to you. It's something that you're born with and the government guarantees. You know, you live out here and you realize how fragile a commodity freedom really is and that if you're not prepared to defend it, somebody's going to take it away from you. And, you know, there's a, I remember the saying from Patrick Henry, uh, one of your founding fathers, uh, live free or die. And that's, that's actually quite a profound statement. You know, it's, sometimes it's, it's better to, you know, die on your feet a free man than live on your knees as a slave. And, uh, you know, i made my decision a long, long time ago. And, and when I'm not a military person, I never held a rifle until uh, January of 2022. But, uh, you know, there, you have to defend and, and what, what, what you love and what you have. You know, Roman Shukhevich, uh, the, the general that led the UPA, the Ukrainian insurgent army, had a, had a very famous saying. He said that we fight not because we hate the enemy in front of us, but because we love the people that stand behind us. It's not banal. It's very, very profound. And it's very true. And um, you know, the government passed a law in 2021 that allowed regular citizens and and, and, let's say civilians to participate in the defense of the country in a meaningful uh, fashion. And and I think actually this it's it's not just the territorial defense force. I think that one of really important takeaway from this war is the concept of total resistance. The entire country is involved in. In, in the defense of the nation. Um, you know, there's people like myself who are uh, join the territorial defense forces. There are others that are, are volunteers uh, providing essential uh, support in, to both the army as well as to needy people across the country, the uh, IDPs, the internally displaced persons. I mean, everybody here is involved. You're either on the front or you're, or you're fighting for the front and And that's a really a it's really brought the country together and it's it's really a profound phenomenon that I think we all sort of felt in our bones that was here before, but people were more focused on what divided them in this country than what united them and you know when it came to defending the country and then really what is an existential threat I mean we are fighting for our very existence because we have an enemy that wants to exterminate us as, as a people and as a nation. And it's brought everybody together in, a, in, in just a, a most fantastic way.
0: Do you think Canada has done enough to help Ukraine during the war? You know, it's funny. I
1: talk to my Canadian friends and, and most of them complain that, that that they don't feel that the government uh, has done enough. And I, I find that I find it kind of odd because I, I don't know what more the government could have done. I mean, we're not the United States. We're not even Britain. Uh, as as Canadians and uh, you know Canada doesn't have the the resources and the size that that these other countries do but you know Canada has always punched above its weight in uh, in in Ukraine uh largely because of the political importance of our our dia- of the diaspora you know Canada has been at the forefront of uh, of many of the discussions uh, over over providing arms and and money and 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 support I mean, from my perspective, I, I'm actually quite proud of, of what the Canadian government has done. Um, Canada has been very ably served by its ambassador, uh, Larissa Galadza, who's, who's done a, an outstanding job here under very difficult circumstances. So I, I, think, I think I'm, you know, I, I don't know what else uh, Canada could have done.
0: We've all been reading in the last few days about the destruction of the Nova Kahofka Dam, Kherson Oblast in Ukraine. There's an interesting article in today's KF by the economist, uh, Swedish economist and Eastern European specialist Anders Eslund. And in the article, he suggests that this is indicative of the scorched earth policy that Putin is now employing in Ukraine since he has been unsuccessful in effectively occupying the country. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I pretty much agree with everything Anders ever writes, uh, so, so I'm not going to disagree at this point. But I mean, I think he's absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I'm reading in the in the New York uh, Times and the Washington Post, especially about you know this. It's not clear; it doesn't seem to be clear what happened and who blew it up. I mean, it just it just beggars belief that Ukraine was going to create an environmental catastrophe, uh, an ecocide of of this magnitude on its own territory, on the eve of a counteroffensive, where it's about to liberate the land that is now being flooded. I mean, you know, this is this is a pure terrorist act by what we've seen time and time again as terrorist acts by a terrorist state. And Russia is a terrorist state. It's, uh, it controlled, it has controlled the dam uh, for the last year. Uh, it appears that the dam was blown from the inside because there's no way... These things were built in the Soviet times to withstand a nuclear rocket attack. So, I mean, it did not, was not blown up by a missile. You know, they've been blackmailing the, the world with a potential nuclear holocaust coming, stemming from a meltdown of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which draws its cooling water from the reservoir that, uh, that the Russians just blew. So that just, you know, raises the stakes even, even more. And you know, they they passed the Russian government passed a resolution last week prohibiting investigations of hydroelectric structures in occupied territories due to terrorist attacks. So I mean they've been laying the information conditions for this kind of an event for a while. I mean, Michael, what what's driving this is that they, they, the Russians are terrified of our upcoming counteroffensive. And this is exactly how they have prosecuted this war throughout this uh, throughout the last year that whenever they are confronted by a loss or a a force that they know they can't beat on the battlefield they go to war against the civilian population this is no different and you know when you stack all the evidence up about how they have behaved what they have done and how the ukrainian army has behaved and and, and ukrainian government has behaved and what it's done you know played by the rules it's not, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been treating its uh, Russian prisoners uh, very, very well. There have been no acts of terror. There have been no extra judicial killings. I mean, you know, you on the one hand, you have a plethora of evidence pointing to the fact that this is how the Russians behave. And on the other hand, when you say, well, it could have been the Ukrainians, there's zero evidence that this is uh, something that Ukrainians engage in. It makes absolutely no sense. The fact that, you know, they flooded Basically, their first line of defense on the uh, on the south shore of of Kherson Oblast and cut off the water to Crimea doesn't mean that they didn't factor that in. They may just think because, you know, human life has no meaning to them uh, in any event. They they said, well, you know, we'll do this now uh, to try to forestall the counteroffensive and then we'll just worry about the rest of this stuff later. And that's exactly how they behave all the time. So, you know, none of this should come as a surprise. And, you know, obviously they've miscalculated because uh, all the evidence points to the fact and our armed forces have have come out with a statement saying that this is going to have zero impact on our ability to to move on the counteroffensive. So they've now weakened their first line of defense and may have even made uh, the job of a counteroffensive, if that's where we were going to go, even easier. Because now we don't have to neutralize Crimea. They did, it for, they did it already for ourselves. We just need to take out the Kerch Bridge now.
0: Daniel, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I do want to thank you for coming on Krenitsa today.
1: Thanks very much. God bless. Slava Ukraine.
0: Slava Hiroyum. I've been speaking with the Ukrainian-Canadian Daniel Bilak. He's former chairman of Ukraine Invest, a partner at the law firm Kinsteller, and now active in the territorial defense forces in Ukraine. This episode of Kreditsia was produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English in the U.S. for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. And I'm Mike Burek, your host and producer of Kreditsia. Until next time, that's all for now.